This is the Saxo Market Call. Daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Saxo Market Call podcast, looking at the commodity market and the way forward into 2023 with you, Ole Hansen, our head of commodity strategy at Saxo. Um, let's dive right into it. I mean, it's been, it's been a wild year for commodities in 2022. You would expect maybe some amount of calm in the coming year. I'm not sure that's what you're going to say, but we have had a remarkable year. Obviously, a lot of that triggered by, uh, well, first we had a strong dollar putting things under pressure a bit in the new year. And then we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which set energy on fire and uh, some foodstuffs on fire as well. And now we are sort of limping into year end on some of these moves uh, and in piecemeal fashion and come sort of full circle on some of these moves. But what's your perspective on this year to date and uh, as we're rolling into the new year? Well, indeed, John, it has been an incredible year, and uh, I would almost say an incredible two years because we, we shouldn't forget that uh, this the, the, the rally that really peaked around March, April time this year started quite a bit earlier. And that was driven by the pandemic and the sudden surge in the demand for consumer goods around the world as central banks handed out cash from almost from helicopters. That led to a massive spending spree that triggered increased demand for, for consumer goods. And so the move was already on, had, had already started back in, in 21. And then it basically got turbocharged at the early parts of 22, as you said. And uh, this this happened despite the strong dollar because the, the dollar strength tends to be quite an adversary to commodity gains, but uh, not this year where a lot of factors has been been uh, underpinning prices. And uh, as you can see on the, the performance there, it's it's been the energy sector that primarily has been in focus. What I'm using is basically the total return index, so that's also taking into account uh, the roll yields that uh, that's has been in positive, uh, providing a positive return this year. But we'll take a look a little bit look at that later. But but generally, as we as we approach the year end, uh, multiple factors right now: the recession risks, as we're seeing through the sharply inverted yield curves, especially in US and Europe. We got the China reopening, which probably has been delayed a bit now with the COVID cases uh, searching, but we've seen a change in in, in direction from the uh, from the Chinese government, and that will lead to an increase uh, economic or an attempt to uh, to boost the economy next year, and that will likely lead to increased demand for for some commodities. The whole geopolitical uh, situation is unresolved, especially with the war in Ukraine, but also I would say uh, U.S.-China relations and uh, and so on. So plenty of potential drivers next year, but the underlying, we still believe that we could actually still see a year where, even though we should have an economic slowdown, that uh, some commodity prices could move higher. And uh, over, if we look 12 months down the line from now, I still see the Bloomberg Commodity Index trade higher. Yeah, we have. Uh, and on your next slide there, you've, you've taken a uh, quote from Zoltan Posar, an analyst who's really been uh, very responsive to the whole new environment we've seen post Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it also uh, dovetails with our outrageous predictions for next year, this theme of the war economy. So those the twin shocks of the pandemic, uh, first of all, especially on the supply side, but also um, on, on manufactured goods, but also on resources. And then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, especially on resources, showing countries how weak their supply chains are and that it could be a national security risk on the supply chain side from the pandemic. And then on the resource access side, especially on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So especially Europe feeling vulnerable on the energy front. So we have this new set of imperatives that are unusual relative to your 
run-of-the-mill recession uh, where you're simply looking to stimulate demand to get it back onto the curve, where you may not have the, the physical world in place like you used to have, and a very uh, rapid reach for the fiscal impulse to right these wrongs, if you will, in terms of the access to both supply chain uh, situations and uh, and resources. So you've got some things listed there on slide three. I'll let you talk the rest of the way through it. But I think, uh, I, I assume that's where we're going to see the unusual offset relative to demand risks for this Ex cycle. Exactly, John. And and, and uh, the commodity bull cycle, uh, some of these, uh, we've, well, we've been talking about these for the past two years. And, uh, and I'll say most of them has not uh, gone away, even though we see an economic slowdown because, these are the reshoring, wiring, and rearming. They're all commodity intensive, especially the rewiring, which uh, which we've seen, especially in Europe this year, with the surging uh, gas and power prices, is uh, is is necessary, and it will continue to. It will be an ongoing process. It will probably be also be in the, that direction that the Chinese uh, government will focus when they when they start to applying cash to uh, to various projects. They will probably be more focused on the rewiring than the and the infrastructure than than building new uh, cities out of steel and concrete that no one wants to live in so um so that that is uh, the uh, the underlying reason but uh, yeah we can read for yourself um as uh, on the slide three there but the main thing is basically that we still have strong underlying physical demand and, and a market that remains tight and and you can't simply turn on the switch you can some to a certain extent in the in the grain market and the agricultural market if, if you have a strong year with with high prices then uh, then obviously you can add you can increase uh, production the following year that's not how it operates when it comes to mining and, and energy production. It takes years. And uh, right now, the investment appetite for longer term projects are simply not there to, to support the continued uh, increase in, in, in supply that's required for at least a number of years in metals for, I would say, for many years to come, perhaps not so much in energy as we, we will hit peak oil sometime within the towards the end of this uh, within the next uh, five to ten years but but in the short term that's not alleviating the the risk of of supply uh, tightness uh, simply because investments are not there yeah i mean i've seen estimates of uh, germany's cost so far for the replacement of its energy formerly cheap energy imported from russia at something like half a trillion euros just remarkable sums and that the, you know even despite that spend they don't exactly have their longer term energy situation or access to energy situation uh, sorted out and just adding to that, John, I think uh, it's been a hard lesson for Europe that we learned this year that uh, the over-dependence on one supply is uh, simply not a good thing. And I think we probably over time will adopt the same approach that we see from China, where they try to avoid having more than a 15%, 15% dependence on any individual country for any uh, individual product. And uh, that's most certainly something that we, we're going to see in, in the future as well in Europe. Okay, now so important and and so poorly understood by those that are novices in the commodity space is the structure of the forward curve uh, in commodities. So where is the price for spot or immediate delivery versus where the market is pricing contracts for delivery further forward? Because this is a massive proportion and sometimes the mo the main portion of your total returns when you're trying to achieve exposure to a commodity, especially from the long side, you want to see uh, spot prices higher than the far out prices so that even if the price stays relatively steady, you can achieve a return on these uh, the so-called roll yield uh, as uh, that, that commodity would be in what's called backwardation when the, the current price is more expensive than the, the longer term price. And that is a really important part of the, the solid returns that commodity investors have 
received that were long from from the get-go this year and you have from pers- some perspective here on slide four exactly and that's a, a, opposed to what we've seen in in probably the last previous five almost 10 years where we've had a long period of of commodity uh, commodity markets being in oversupply and uh, that's led to a so-called contango where the spot price was the cheapest but when you have a backwardation basically if you are an etf provider or you are an investor yourself uh, through the futures market you will have to roll these expiring futures contract on a on a on a regular basis in oil for instance on a monthly basis and when the expiring contract is trading higher than the next you're selling high and buying the next low that is giving you a positive roll yield called backwardation and this has really been a, a major driver as you mentioned this year I'll just take a look on the on slide four we got uh, I put in a an ETF that tracks the Bloomberg commodity index so that's basically taking all these roll yields into account and it's uh, it's currently up close to 15% on the year and if you just look at the actual spot price development it's only up seven a little bit less than eight percent so it's really making a, having a significant impact on the the return you can can expect right now the the backwardation across the uh, bloomberg commodities index has come down especially because we've seen some weakness in the energy space so the the red line there in the middle is indicating the 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 potential or the weighted average for these uh, commodities in the bloomberg commodity index and right now it's come down to around two percent it was uh, more than five percent uh, three months ago we do expect that backwardation will start to uh, to to rise again thereby providing that kind of free free money as you can say in 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 the market so uh, most certainly worth keeping an eye on Okay, another thing that uh, people need to understand when they're looking at any commodity market is how is the market already positioned? We can get some uh, semblance of this, at least in the futures market, from studying these U.S. weekly uh, commitment of traders reports, which give a general picture how commercials are positioned versus how speculators are positioned or at least leveraged traders. Now, we've come down quite a bit, as you can see on slide five. What are the reasons behind, do you think, some of that come down in positioning is it is it just the outlook or is it could it also be about the the volatility just requiring a reduction in exposure two things volatility and momentum uh the volatility that we saw spiking high around the invasion of ukraine earlier this year that triggered a massive reduction in speculative interest even though the market was going higher simply because if you are targeting a certain amount of volatility in your portfolio as a hedge fund and that volatility goes up you have to reduce your exposure. So that's part of it. And then uh, secondly, it's simply just momentum. Hedge funds are, well, they are clever people because what they are very good at, which uh, the rest of us are sometimes struggling with, is holding on to a trend once it's established. And uh, these guys will will sometimes be called dumb money because they, they quite often end up being the longest, uh, having the longest position at the, at the turn from a, from a rally and the biggest short at a turn towards the higher prices. But it obviously means that they've been running the profit all the way through to the turn in the, in the market. But that basically also means as as momentum starts to fade, as we start to see this negative price action, they have been forced to, to sell markets and, and reduce their exposure. And that's why we on this chart we can see how we how the exposure is pretty weak at this point in time. And but it also highlights the the, the upside risk if we do see a, a change in sentiment or a change in momentum, change in the technical picture, then these guys will start to get back into the market, and that that is can feed uh, the next rally. At the same time, it's also worth pointing out that the the overall interest in the market uh, has also suffered uh, this past couple of years from the elevated level of volatility. That basically means it's, it's become a bit more difficult to trade these markets simply because the intraday volatility quite often is uh, is quite great, uh, quite big. We've seen that obviously in the energy markets on a regular basis, also in the in the food commodities. But right now, the the total 
cake, open cake or open interest in the futures commodity market has has dropped to the lowest in eight years. So um, that we would like to see uh, increase again because uh, the, the bigger the open interest is, the more solid the market is, and the less the, the less the market is prone to these big price swings. Yeah. Now let's uh, next. I think you were delving into a couple of uh, actual commodities, uh, so the actual commodity markets and, and what you're looking for outlook wise. And I think the first one is really remarkable. And and I think there's been a big heavy hand, especially since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that prevented what could have been perhaps a worse spike. And that was the Biden administration's decision to unleash these this uh, these strategic petroleum reserves to mute the price advances uh, from from what what you know the implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and this embargo effectively against Russian oil, which has been piecemeal and partially successful, but it's, there's there's a huge effect there, obviously. So draining um, on the order of 40% of the U.S. reserve in, in one calendar year is just remarkable stuff. It is indeed. And and the government looks pretty pretty clever at this point in time, having sold uh, so much crude oil at, at quite a lot higher prices than what we're seeing right now. And we just saw this uh, past week that they have signaled that they are sending out the first orders to uh, to start buying some of that those reserves back because that has always been the intention that they were selling it now uh, to buy it back at a later time when, when prices uh, permitted. And that basically means as well at this point, we probably have a soft floor in the WTI below $70. I think it also ties in with the fact that OPEC Plus having fought so hard uh, through uh, since the uh, pandemic low to stabilize prices and and um, massage the prices higher, they would not uh, they will stand uh, not stand idle and and watch prices uh, drop back down again if we should see a, a deeper than expected recession. So so expect a soft flow under the market from SPR being refilled and the OPEC Plus keep a close eye on on their production levels to uh, to stabilize the prices. And one thing we've also seen this year has been in within the within OPEC and and generally how how several key producers have really been struggling to uh, to increase production. And I think that's also part of the issue that uh, over the coming years potentially could be a risk, uh, an upside risk for the market. Just look at the Nigeria as an example on the small insert down slide six. They're struggling uh, right now. They're, they're producing well below their, their dotted line, which is basically the target that uh, that has been set, which was reduced for, uh, for November and December. But they're well below. So they can obviously still increase production, but they're really struggling to do so, even though we have these very high prices. And that's likely investment is high inflation and 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 uh, and certain extent also some uh, political problems in in the country but uh, that's uh, that's worth keeping in mind and then, and then also US oil production we're nowhere near the records from uh, before the pandemic and even next year the expectations for production growth in the US has continuously been revised lower from the EIA in the in the past 6 months so we I'm I doubt that we will will get back to the record levels next year, even if, even though we have these very high prices. And uh, it's, that's a predicament for the Biden administration because above a hundred dollars, they were really uh, talking against the oil industry, and uh, they want the oil industry to to ramp up uh, production in order to get prices down. Now they're also obviously also aware that if prices fall too much, they will remove the rock underneath the uh, their own market, and that they need that kind of energy security. So that's why the tone also has started to to change. So now that price come down they want to support the the industry by by offering to buy oil at uh, at lower prices all right now let's move on to copper a very interesting metal and it's often called dr copper because it supposedly provides some indication of where the global economy is headed and we have to look at china as a key component on the demand side obviously for copper 
as the world's leading commodity consumer and as the world's factory. Now, there are a lot of industries that use copper, uh, and we have to—we all have to know what the heck is going to happen with China next year. It's been very asynchronic what China has been doing relative to the rest of the economy. So as the economy boomed, uh, as it was opening up from the pandemic and all that fiscal cash was working its way through the system, China was going uh, moving along with its zero COVID policy and shutting down a lot of activity, especially in the consumption side, keeping its economy in a very parlous state. Uh, on the demand side domestically. And so now we have COVID opening, as you mentioned earlier, uh, where the ironic first round effect is that you have even more reduced activity because of a lot of sickness. So we've seen that measured. We talked on this morning's daily podcast about uh, the case count or or the evidence of that in the daily numbers, for example, of metro passenger traffic in in big cities in China. But if we look at the lessons from the pandemic, at least if, if we assume this COVID wave plays out like it did everywhere else, where it's essentially uncontrolled through the population, you have maybe a month, and I'm not a virus expert, this is just a rough estimation, I guess, maybe a month of a ramping up and then another month of ramping down. So maybe by the time of their New Year celebration and once we get on the other side of that in late January and into early February, then we know at least we have a clean slate COVID-wise for China either to stimulate or to not. But that, I guess, has to be the number one question uh, for any commodities trader in this uh, metal space, industrial metal space in particular, what will the Chinese, the nature of Chinese demand be? And then I guess there's the supply side of well, of course. Exactly. And, and especially how much of the, the demand will be, uh, or the, the previous demand towards housing and building industry will be replaced by demand from the tra- energy transition. And there are signs this year that that, tra- that uh, switch in demand has been been quite strong. So the Chinese demand has not fallen to the extent that, that the property crisis uh, would otherwise have uh, been indicating. But you are right, John, the, the virus focus is really quite clear on this uh, chart, we, the price chart. If you look back in uh, June time, we had a spike up to four, $4.50 before it tanked all the way down to below, well below three fifty, And that was basically uh, news, alternating news on the virus front. And then the renewed lockdowns in starting to occur there in June. And we saw the market just uh, falling, fall off a cliff. And we broke that key level of uh, around the $4 mark and we, we, we slumped. Now we've been spending the past few months uh, recovering and we are getting close to that level again. Potentially not ready to break through just yet, simply because the market is is looking for additional mine supply to come online in uh, 23 before the the funnel of additional mine supply starts to to dry out in the years to come. And that's why the, the long-term outlook for, by, I think, almost everyone that's, that looks at copper is very price supportive. Uh, but the short-term picture is still one where there's a lot of uncertainty. But I think the just looking at the experience we had in Europe this year with, with the power crisis and the gas crisis, and also the news from several cities, basically uh, almost, I think it was Switzerland, based saying we, we can't allow more sales of EVs once we get the grid extended, or at least we get through the peak winter demand period for heating. That highlights the, the need for a rebuilding or the expansion of the infrastructure to support this massive uh, electrification that we're seeing taking place around the world. And that is copper intense. So just as we put in the line there, copper goes into batteries to electrical motors, to solar PV technologies and wind turbines and hydrogen economies. So it is much needed across the board. With that in mind, John, when we do see the pickup in demand, then the, the market will, will focus on the inventory levels and they are pretty weak, as you can see. This is obviously not the, the full picture, but these the, the chart on the right just highlights the available inventories monitored by the big exchange in London, Shanghai and New York. All right. This uh, interesting outlook there because uh, it's not just as easy as snapping your fingers to trans to transition to an, uh, this electrified economy. It's going to take a lot of investment. 
and among other things in the metal space. Now, precious metal is a very different beast, especially gold, of course, where its industrial uses are virtually nil and it's mostly about investment demand. So take us through the story that leads that leads gold higher as well as as well as the industrial metals in the new year. Well, basically the the story that that led to our outrageous prediction calling for gold at 3000 is the main reason why we we see gold higher next year. Obviously not to the to the extent that it it raises raises that high, but but I think first of all gold has had a good year. Those who are looking for absolute returns, they will disagree. They say well a zero uh, return in a year where we had the highest inflation in 40 years, that's pretty bad. But I think at the same time we just have to acknowledge the fact that gold is is very much part of the financial system where it, it focuses a lot on uh, the developments of the dollar, but also the movements in, in the yield market. So when yield rises, uh, that tends to be bad news for, for gold. This year, we've seen a massive jump in, in treasury yields and in real yields. We've seen the, the dollar, at least up until recently, move substantially higher. And uh, despite of this, gold is still trading on changes in the year. So you can argue, well, what happens then when the, we see a peak in the dollar? You probably have a better feeling for the timing of that, John, than I have. And what happens when we we hit peak uh, interest rates as well, and we see yields start to turn lower simply because the economic growth outlook starts to deteriorate. That will be the uh, the turning point or, or the point where there will be renewed investment demand for, for gold because that investment demand has been a drag all year. We can see that on the blue line on the right-hand side there. That's ETF total holdings. It's been, it's been drifting lower more or less all year. And uh, we haven't seen any pickup yet. And that basically coincides with the market. Basically, investors saying, well, as long as we believe the central bank will be successful in getting inflation under control, there's not a great deal of interest in holding gold. But what if when they start to lose that that belief, that's really when you start to need to uh, look at gold as, as, a, as a hedge against the potential moves that may, may come in both in, in inflation, uh, changing in forward inflation expectations, and with that also uh, the real yields. And I think underlying, we also just have to remember the, that the central banks has been very strong buyers this year. In the third quarter, when gold dropped 8%, they picked up more than 400 tons of gold. I see that uh, trend continuing. We got central banks who would like to be get rid of the dollar, um, or at least reduce their dependency on the dollar. And I think that, uh, and we also got some very cash-rich uh, central banks in the in the Middle East, very high on high on reserves, having had a bumper year in the oil market and gas market. They will probably also be by be buying gold. So, um, so underlying, we remain oh, bullish on gold. And if that turns out to be the case, then silver is likely to do equally good, potentially even better. Yeah, and you've got some thoughts on that on slide nine. I don't know if you want to differentiate between the outlook for those two metals. Yeah, simply uh, that uh, silver depends on on movements not only in gold but also in industrial metals. Uh, there we keep uh, quite quite a close eye on silver. At certain points this year, silver had a higher correlation to copper than it had to gold. And obviously also the dollar. It was strength in gold and copper and the weakness in the dollar that drove uh, silver to near $50 well, more than a decade ago. And if we do see these three movements, uh, drivers start to act like that again, then uh, then silver has the potential to uh, to move higher. So say gold moves to $2,000, that uh, during the same time frame, silver potentially could start to uh, take a look at a closer look at $30. All right, now let's take uh, for our final specific commodity, let's have a look at the natural gas situation, which for Europe is especially pressing. That really cheap Russian gas that uh, Germany was importing, uh, there was a Zoltan Posar piece that was out saying basically you had uh, Germany running a two trillion, uh, 2 trillion euro worth of an industrial base on $20 billion or whatever the amounts were of some, some ridiculously small portion of that running on an input of cheap Russian gas. 
I mean, the, the levels here, and it, it's hard for us, we, we're not used to as consumers considering what, what is a unit of gas, what does that cost? But the, the multiples that gas prices went up, we, we've seen, some of us have seen it in our heating bills, those that aren't been, haven't been protected by all the government subsidies. It's code red for Europe getting this situation solved. Now, there's been some stopgap measures. They're importing a lot of American LNG, but uh, they need to source some new supplies, uh, even though they have managed to kill uh, demands to some degree. So what's your outlook both for next year and just maybe a general comment on the on the longer term here? Well, I think the, the good news is that the immediate risk of a shortage is, is, is it has gone. It's basically a rap- evaporating or being sharply reduced uh, day by day because we have we had such a strong buildup in uh, gas inventories uh, in well into the early winter months uh, simply because, well, it, we had mild weather across Europe. It's turning colder now, so we're starting to, uh, to reduce uh, inventory levels. But it's still the current level compared to where we were this time last year equates to more than 30 days of peak winter demand so uh, we are i would say we are on that basis we are we are well clear even if russia should cut the remaining uh, gas supplies uh, through ukraine that's the that's part of the blue area in the in the center chart here on, on slide 10 but generally we can't live with euro or gas at 100 euros for forever it's it's still a factor what four or five above where we were where we're used to seeing them so we need to see gas prices lower that will probably not happen at least for another another year uh, we need to get through another winter we need to get through another stock building season and then we'll basically have to see how how we come out on the other side so far this year gas uh, demand is probably down anywhere between 12 and 15% that equates to around 30% 37% of uh, total russian import in previous years so that has uh, so we have reduced our dependency on on russian gas a lot i still expect that when we get a peace situation in ukraine we over time we will start to buy more gas again from from russia but we will obviously learn from this experience we never put all our eggs in one basket again so uh, so that is the main i suppose the main uh, hope for for lower gas prices in in uh, over the coming year but otherwise the the transition is needs to gather pace we need the base load, and I think we learned that uh, from the experience this past few weeks here, where we saw some mm-hmm. tremendous volatility in, in power prices, simply because uh, the, uh, the, the the renewable uh, production is, in, for instance, in the UK as an example, it can switch on and off to the tune of what 14, 15 nuclear power plants. That's how much dependency we become on on wind and obviously when the wind doesn't blow we have an issue we need to find alternative sources right now that's gas and uh, there's a lot lot of focus i would say on nuclear potentially to cater for that base load but again that's not going to come to uh, today or tomorrow that's probably going to take at least five years before that happens so elevated prices for the foreseeable future and and high volatility is unfortunately the uh, the, the byproduct of of this this change in in dependency on or the mix between uh, renewables and and uh, old style inputs all right Ole, that's a great overview for commodity markets as we close out this year and we look forward to 2023 it's going to be an interesting year almost uh, regardless of whether we're right or wrong so we'll look forward to see how the commodities market develops as we roll into 2023 Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>